Hey everybody, welcome to the Collective Podcast. My name is Ash Thorpe. This is going to be episode 60 with the talent Gavin Rothery, part one. Gavin is a concept artist, designer, directs films. He's writing right now. He used to draw comics. He's, he's just kind of a creative spirit, just creating all kinds of different things. He's been involved significantly with a film that I really enjoy called Moon. We talk a little bit about his involvement with that, some behind the scenes, some of the little cool details from that, some of his childhood, where he came from, how he got to be where he's at now. It's a really great talk. It went on for quite a long time, and that's where we're doing part one and part two. So um, next week, you're going to have the second edition of this episode. But um, for now, here's part one. And a big thanks to Gavin. It took us months to actually set this podcast up because he's so busy. Congratulations to him for having his first child. And uh, this is a really interesting talk. I hope you guys enjoy it. This week's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Basecamp. Basecamp is this awesome product that I've been using for quite some time now where it helps you organize and manage projects. Uh, I was using it actually quite a bit recently for the projects that I'm developing where I have multiple different things that are involved, images or um, just little notes or little bits and pieces and I can kind of keep a thread of things. So um, I can go and build it out with them when I get really inspired and then I come back to it maybe like a week later um, when I need to revisit it and I can go back through the thread and kind of refine where I was at mentally and it helps me really kind of get back to that realm of creativity and keep my brain organized because I have so many things going on. So. If you're like me and you have a lot of projects going on, Basecamp is a really awesome tool to use to help keep you efficient and keep everything clean and organized. They have a really awesome setup where they can do a 60-day free trial. So um, I tried it actually in the beginning when I was trying it and turned it out to be a really useful tool for me and, and I turned out to be using it for many years now, like three years now I've been using it. So there's a link at the bottom of the podcast if you're interested in giving it a go. Again, it's called Basecamp. It's an awesome product and it's our sponsor and they're bringing you episode 60 today with Gavin Rothery. Here we go. Tea. No, you know, just Americans, you know, so we don't do the tea thing as much as you guys out there. I was quite surprised by that because straight away I'm going straight into a little bit of moon trivia, if that's all right with you. Um, yeah. It surprised me. When, uh, I've got a really cool story about tea um, that comes directly from the um, fantastic Mr. Sam Rockwell that you mm. told me about when we were shooting moon. Um, we were filming, because I'm terrible for tea because I grew up in Yorkshire, North England, and... My, um, my grandparents were always drinking tea and they got me into it, going to visit them and stuff. Um, what, actually, what really got me into tea was 2000 AD because they, um, they used to get it delivered to their house and I used to go and collect it on a Saturday morning and I'd drink tea with my granddad and read 2000 AD, the comic. Um, but anyway, we were, so I, I drink like, I'll drink like 20 cups of tea a day if I can get to the kettle. Really? And, yeah you're hooked on it man what kind of tea do you drink because i know that i know you guys have like a really particular thing i used to work with um a lot of um dudes from the uk that were like really they're high authorities on it like my friend paul mitchell or henry hobson and those guys and they were all they had this tweenies or something like that what's the name of it there's like a this is what I've got in this cup right next to me right now is a, a nice cup of Twining's English breakfast tea. There you go. <laughs> 20 glasses a day, you're hooked on it, man. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But, um, <clears throat> you know, when, you, when you're when working in a, in a film studio, um, quite often next to, you know, if you're on a soundstage 
outside in the corridor, they always have like a little, a little kind of tea and cake station and like a little sandwich station. Mm. And it was the middle of middle of a random afternoon. We were shooting, and I just popped. We were just in a. We must have been between setups or getting a, getting a setup going. And I just popped out into the corridor to make myself a drink, and there's nobody around. And uh, Sam wanders over, and I'm just there's just me and him in the corridor. And he, he wanders over, and he, he's like, uh, he goes, "Hey, what you got going on there?" <laughs> and I'm like, uh, "I'm just making a cup of tea. Do you want one?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that Yorkshire Gold?" And I was like, "It was because I'd asked for some because uh, the other big tea that um, that goes down quite well with Yorkshire tea. <clears throat> so I'd actually got Yorkshire tea on the from the production to make sure that we had nice tea. And so Sam's like, "Yeah, yeah. Is that uh, Yorkshire Gold?" I was like, "Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me." So I was like, "Okay." Cool, so I made him a cup of tea, and I was just sort of chatting. I was like, I thought being American, you'd be into coffee and not into tea. And he's like, no, I don't drink coffee, I just drink tea. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's really unusual, because, you know, that lives in New York and everything. And then uh, he, goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, um, Sigourney Weaver got me into it. And oh. I was like, what? And uh, <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah, when they were doing Galaxy Quest. He goes, he goes oh, have you seen Galaxy Quest? I was like, yeah, of course. Great film. He goes, well, when we were shooting Galaxy Quest... Um, the the cool place to be, like you know, in the, all the downtime, was in Sigourney Weaver's trailer, because she hung out in a trailer all the time when they weren't filming. And you know what she'd do is, if she liked you, she'd invite you into a trailer to hang out and just you know just kind of pass the time. Um, and so when she asked Sam if she wanted to hang out in the, in the trailer, is like brilliant. I mean, the cool kids club. So <laughs> it's hanging out in Sigourney Weaver's trailer, <clears throat> and she's like, "Oh, do you want a cup of tea?" And he's like, "Yeah, okay." Like never had it before. And she made him a, um, a cup of Yorkshire Gold and got him addicted to tea. Mm. So he got into it from Sigourney Weaver on Galaxy Quest. And I've since learned that Sigourney Weaver got into tea from her time in Shepperton in the same studio um, that we were filming Moon on during Alien. Oh, perfect. Which is the, what's the name of the the studio again? Is it um, Shepperton? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. there's like mm. there's two big studios out there that they made a lot of those films. I know Shepperton's one of them, but like, is that where they did Legend as well? Uh, I don't know where they shot Legend. Alien was done in Shepperton. Um, a lot of Star Wars. Star was Wars was yeah. Um, Shep- thing is, though, when you get these big films, they tend to shoot all over the place. Yeah, of course. Um, Split Shepperton's it out. one of the smaller studios, but it's just. I don't know. It's, it's actually my favorite studio in, in uh, London. Crazy First, good, like a lot of skilled people there. Yeah, huh. loads. I mean, one of my favorite um, film industry people's got his workshop down there too, Bill Pearson, who did the uh, the models on Moon. Mm. That's so, awesome. Yeah, it's it's just nice when you know that there's all these really cool people around that you can just kind of drop in and see. Sure, of course. And then you're part of, I mean, I know for you, um, from what little I know of you based off your blog and the things, like I listen to the film commentary and stuff, And um, but you're a big fan of a lot of this sci-fi, so I'm sure it's got to be, I'm sure when you're on the set there, you probably must have been freaking out, you know, because these are this is where some of the iconic films of our era were, were created, parts of them at least, you know. Yeah, you're always trying to play it cool, but inside, you're just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I would be. I'd be like, dude, let me grab a piece of this wall and take it home. <laughs> well, when when I was uh, in Bill's workshop one time, um, he sort of disappeared in the back, and he's like, he had this like cheeky look on his face, and he's like, I've got something you like, and he, he came, he sort of disappeared around the back of his like wonderful. I mean, you know, model model builders workshops are just like Aladdin's caves of coolness. Yeah, especially he's been around for a few years, like Bill, and he's done a lot of. Uh, a lot of a lot of projects because the shelves are just covered in all kinds of cool stuff that you recognize straight away from tv and film yeah um, it just appears in the back and he comes out with this uh, like a black bin bag and he, and he kind of carries it over really carefully 
And he opens it up and pulls out this thing inside. And he goes, do you know what this is? I recognized it immediately. I knew what it was, that instant, the instant I saw it. And it was part of the Nostromo. Uh, it was a miniature. And it was about maybe like 12 inches long and about five or six inches high. <laughs> and it was, there's a shot in Alien. You know where Ripley's trying to um, self-destruct the Nostromo? Yeah. And she's in the engine room. Uh, there's one really wide shot where we see we see her through a window. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the shot? Yeah, it's it's shot. a it's a miniature part, right? That goes into the yeah. like, the whole big like corridor kind of section, right? It's like a room full of like bits of the engine, which are actually yeah. in the miniature. They're actually space shuttle model kit tanks. Yeah, um, there's, there's like 350 or something. It's telling me all this big story about the engine room build. Oh, but um, he had the window. The window's got this weird kind of. There's two two rectangular windows side by side, and they're at a funny angle with each other. Um, and he had that angled piece of the window that Sigourney Weaver's like projected into. Oh, and it was just, you know, he brought it out and just put it down on the table. And it's just, I mean, really, it's just like a little bit of plastic. <laughs> yeah. With some, with some like vinyl on it. But you're looking at it and it's just like, <laughs> just looking at this thing, just thinking, oh my God, this is like absolutely amazing. <laughs> Having this real moment with this little piece of plastic. You know, <laughs> Yeah, when you when, when you put it into context, you know, and you change it and you put it into a story, and it all fades together. It's it's got its it becomes its own self. It it it, it lacks it, it goes from plastic to something memorable, which is wonderful it's as well, right? I mean, it's it's like a part of this <laughs> historical thing that's just just beautiful. It's just a beautiful thing. Absolutely, man. That's what that's really what the beauty of these films are, you know. And it's it's something that. I always remember every time I watch a really great old sci-fi is I just, I get blown away. I mean, the first shot of star Wars, you know, when the yeah. star destroyer comes Stop up above you, you know, and, and the sound so of it. And it's like a perfect storm, you know, um, we're, you know, that changed my life as a growing up. Did, was it, did it have the same kind of impact on you? It, it did. I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure that, you know, probably anybody, I'm sure that like most of our friends like would agree the same thing, but um, were you an yeah. '80s kid too? Did you grow up in the '80s? I was born in '73, so I'm 73? actually 40 now. Okay, so 40 I was, now. I was three. I was 70s kid. Years old. Yeah. When I went to first, I was taken to the cinema by my uh, my mum to watch Star Wars, and she still she still kind of takes a Mickey out of me. Like apparently, when we were driving back in, the, I don't remember all of this, but when we were driving back in the car. Mm-hmm. I was really, I was really going on at her about how we needed to get a new car because you know I was really kind of it, it, the car that we were in. It was easy, all right, you know, it was like a Ford Sierra or something, but it just felt like a really kind of shitty car because it had wheels. And I was like, <laughs> we need to get one of these cars with no wheels, mum. That's what it's all about, like Luke's car. You really need to get one of these. <laughs> we, need to, we need to, you know, we need to change this car. This car's a piece of shit. <laughs> she's still, uh, she's still brings that one out whenever I'll like, bring a girl up bring a girl home. <laughs> Although I haven't done that for a long time because now I have a lovely girlfriend and uh, I'll just stick that in there because she'll be listening to this. So. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and aren't you guys starting a family too? Yeah, I've got a five-year-old, a five-month-old five-year-old, five-month-old like, girl. Awesome. So, Congratulations to the both of you guys. That's a, that's yeah, cheers. A, you, have, you have a little one yourself, right? Yeah, my daughter's nine years old though, so it's a bit of a difference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're in the beginning stages. Are you getting? Are you guys getting enough sleep? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> that means you guys are actually doing your job then. So yeah, it's tricky because like I've got so much work on at the moment, and it's just like having a having this kind of little little egg turning up. It's just pretty, <laughs> uh, it's 
pretty hardcore because they don't they boss you about a lot don't they babies yeah <laughs> they do because um you know that you can't they, they don't know how to communicate yet and so they'll just kind of push you around until you until you know um they can talk to you and then you could talk back and there can be a nice relay back and forth but yeah it's uh it's a bit crazy <laughs> reasonable i think it's a funny thing though because i for years i was thinking oh i need to get my career to a certain point before i um you know before i start a family and stuff yeah and then eventually you just go well you know you're never going to get everything exactly where you want it to be otherwise yeah. you're finished yeah. You've like finished everything you want to do in your life. And no matter where you get to, there's always more that you want to do. So, you know, we just thought, let's just go for it. But yeah. um, there's, never no, yeah. there's never a right time for that stuff. It just kind of comes about when it comes. So, yeah. It took me ages to accept that, though. Do you know what I mean? It took me, it took me yeah. a really long time to actually accept that. <laughs> it's most people do. It. Yeah. Sorry, you are saying? Sorry, this is probably going to be really boring for everybody now. We're talking about no, movies. no, man. Yeah, I mean, there, there's yeah, yeah, no, we'll talk about sci-fi, but there's a, there's quite a few, um, you know, parents or people that are thinking about having kids and and wanting to work in the industry and stuff. So this kind of this kind of stuff is important, you know, just as much I think. I mean, there's different levels of it, but no, I just I just want to congratulate you guys. I think that's 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 awesome, you know, and and if you're busy and you're trying to balance it all, you know, it's not easy, but yeah, congratulations to you guys. So it's a big. It's one. Th it's one thing to work on movies. It's another to create a life and and to you know to create a child and to raise it properly. That's a whole different ballpark, you know. So well, yeah. she's already got a first film part lined up. So <laughs> perfect. Okay. I need uh, then one of my like my um, feature that I've got in development at the moment that hopefully we'll be shooting at the beginning of next year. Ah, congratulations! Um, <clears throat> yeah, cheers. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite a welcome in that, but um. Yeah, she's. I need a little girl for the final scene. So, boom! I now have a daughter to use. <laughs> free child, free child. Yeah, for free film. child for film. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> you can just sign her off on it. Yeah, about <laughs> parents on set, all that stuff. I'll take care of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. No, that's awesome, and congratulations too. I mean, I know it's uh, the f the film and business of making movies is a challenging ordeal. So, congratulations on you know putting toward forth the effort because i know it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort yeah it does well it's one of those things you hear people talking about these kind of things in interviews quite a lot about how you need like that kind of level of drive where <clears throat> you know if you're gonna make a film you just have to make that film and that's kind of the overriding concern of you know your entire existence is to get that film made and you feel like you'll die if you don't get it done um, yeah do you know what i mean you hear yeah. people talking about that and <clears throat> you know that's kind of how i feel about all this stuff too it just feels really important yeah you kind of have to put importance to that level on it or it doesn't yeah. get done. At least it yeah. does, but I don't think it gets done at the level that people expect it to because you're going up against guys like Ridley Scott and Stanley Kubrick, you know? Yeah, I love those guys. <laughs> yeah, those bastards and freaking <laughs> trendsetters, you know? Damn them. How can you compete with those kind of uh, that level? I was thinking about that the other day, like how, uh, how high a level some of these guys have, have have put on the rest of the world, you know, um, for creation and stuff, As, especially Stanley, um, 2001. And just really thinking about that film and how much it's affected so many people. I recently saw enter the void and that director, he, <clears throat> he brings up, Gasper, yeah, Gasper. Yeah. Is it, no, yeah. Yeah. I think it's Gasper. It's <laughs> yeah. It's very crazy. Um, it's crazy that it even got made, which I think is great, but I, it, it's really crazy. Um, the, the the special effects in there is, is is pretty exquisite by a buff I think that did it. 
yeah. most of it. I think they're out there by you, right? Aren't they? Okay. Uh, they're in France, both. Oh, they're in France. Okay. Yeah. I so thought they had a, like a had a I thought they had a, a location in the UK as well, but maybe not. They might do. I just might not know much about it. I do spend quite a lot of my time being quite insular <clears throat> for the past couple of years. It's uh, I do a lot of freelance work, and because I've got I've got two feature projects that are both running along the developmental rails with ticking clocks on them. Yeah. So I I'm basically just kind of um, just pushing forwards with things and not trying to be too distracted with other things. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that you might presume that I would have been doing, like since Moon, I actually haven't been doing. Yeah. Because I've been pursuing my own things, which just take quite a while to happen. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that's actually a good um, lesson, too. And and it's probably, I mean, it's taken, I think I reached out to you like two years ago or a year ago or so. No way. Um, it was that long ago. I think it was, it was a while ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, just off and on, I didn't want to bombard you with emails. But when I found, when I came across, I mean, obviously, it's, I had seen Moon and I really loved it and I enjoyed it a lot of the concepts and, and just the things about it. And then I somehow stumbled upon your, your blog and I was like, wow, this guy really, uh, he's like, he's a fan of sci-fi like myself, you know, and, uh, just, you know, reading your post and, and I, pre- and I appreciated a lot of the funny, uh, commentary and stuff. And then, but I think it's really cool. And, and, and it must've been a really good eye opening experience for you to be on the, on the set for moon and realizing the actuality of making films and then wanting to do it yourself. Was it a big inspiration? The trans the transition was it after Moon, where you're just like, okay, I got to make my own film. So, you know, I, I tell you what, I tell you what was weird about this. <clears throat> Excuse me, that what you just described then definitely happened to me, but it happened quite a lot earlier in 2003 mm. on Shaun of the Dead. Okay, because I worked on Shaun of the Dead um, in a completely random capacity. I mean, what happened on Shaun of the Dead was I, a friend of mine, at the time I was working in the games industry. I was actually um, doing Grand Theft Auto 3 at the time. I was making vehicles for Grand Theft Auto 3. Mm. And um, a friend of mine saw an email um, or a post or something on a, on a site. Um, and it was like, hey, do you want to be um, a zombie in a film? And so they called it a zombie army. It's like, come and join the zombie army. This is back in 2004 where the zombie thing wasn't going. You know, it was, I mean, now zombies are everywhere, but 2004... You know, they, it was a, it was like a, a fresh thing again. Yeah. And you know, I grew up on the original <laughs> handful of Romero genius zombie films like Night, Dawn, and Day of the Dead, like the original ones. And <clears throat> so the idea of being a zombie is like very, you know, very appealing to me. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so we went along to be zombies. Um, night shoots at New Cross, which turned out to be the exterior stuff for the Winchester pub in Shaun the Dead. Hmm. Uh, it was all shot out in New Cross. And when we got there and we all got made up as zombies, it wasn't until we were on set and uh, <laughs> we realized it was the space guys because, you know, you, they were all there. And we were just like, holy shit, this is brilliant. The space guys are making a zombie film. This is amazing. Yeah. Like, no one knew anything about it. You know, it was really under the radar. And um, <clears throat> I, I was a zombie for a couple of weeks and I ended up getting pulled out of the zombie crowd and asked to um, stand in for Simon Pegg because at the time I had short, blonde, dyed hair. Like coincidentally, and <laughs> looked quite like him. So I got pulled out of the zombie crowd, and then all of a sudden, I was going in like earlier in the morning, going through the same like hair and makeup and stuff and wardrobe as Simon, and then just like hanging out on the set. And those guys would be going sort of you know in setups. Me and a couple of other people would be standing in for everybody, and then we get everything all good to go. You know, everyone would get everything sort of nailed, and then they'd come in and and do the scene. And uh, 
it was amazing, like doing that for a few weeks was just, that was when I really, because at the time I was living with Duncan, like, <clears throat> and we were, you know, we've been trying to make films for ages. I mean, Moon was us trying to make a film for 10 years. We had a couple of false starts, eventually we managed to make something, and what we managed to make was Moon. But at the time, um, you know, we were very much kind of um, sort of scrutting around at the sort of trying to get established and get started and trying to get cool jobs in and do something worthwhile. And all the work out there was like really kind of crap, like two grand promo, um, you know, sort of like labels taking a taking a bet on a an act that they didn't know if it was going to do anything. So they put a thousand quid or two thousand quid into a promo yeah, and try and get yeah. something good out of it. And so we were doing, we did something like 50 treatments for these things um and we never actually got one because the competition was that fierce yeah it's so really even trying to work for free for no money on something really shit was still almost impossible <laughs> um, and so you know we were really just you know we were trying to trying to do our own thing and supporting ourselves working in the games industries and just uh trying to get into film and then when we did show on the dead uh, so when, when i did uh, uh my work on show on the dead i was on the set and i was looking at all these people and i was like these guys are just like us. They're, they're just like us. There's nothing going on here that that didn't make complete sense. You know, watching how everything... Because that was my um, my first experience on a proper feature set. And just watching the whole thing work and seeing how everybody talks to everybody. And, you know, because I knew all the... I knew everybody's roles and I knew the lingo and all that kind of stuff. And I knew who was supposed to do what and how that side of things worked. But just watching, like, Simon and Edgar having the back and forth and how they're blocking scenes and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was fantastic to just be right there. Yeah. And it, I was coming home every night and saying to Duncan, like, you know, it's, this is just like, this is fine. We can totally do this. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that was where I first got, and that, that was when we started kind of turning our efforts towards trying to do features rather than just kind of dicking around doing these little promos that were never going anywhere. <laughs> well, so well, just, just aim big, you know, just try and, try and kind of climb the ladder. And before that, you're probably studying a lot of film and, and a lot of listening, a lot of behind the scenes. But I'm sure just being on the set, like you were saying, it just made that much more sense then, right? Because you're just like, oh, this is like definitely tangible. It's definitely within reach. It's just a matter of linking up the last few couple little connections. Was, the main thing was being right there, being right there <clears throat> excuse me, whilst the creative people like Edgar and Simon and Nick and, you know, all those guys basically were just talking with each other about how they were going to do it and then working things out, trying something and then talking about it again. That was the real thing that, that I, I just kind of, there was no mystery there. Do you know what I mean? It was like, this is, makes complete sense to me. These guys are just talking about what they're going to do, having some ideas and then going and trying it. Yep. It, it was perfect. It was like so simple and logical. Yeah. Just seeing these guys that I've got so much respect for. Cause, I mean, obviously space is a uh, space is like one of the best TV shows ever made. Yeah. And, uh, just, just watching these guys that are just like probably one of the most formidable creative teams working, um, and seeing them, you know, seeing them doing it and just being right there when it's all going on was just, you know, it was just great. And all it really came to was really good people talking to each other. Silly as that might sound. Yeah, well, it's the right people linking up with the right people and people. You it's know. no witchcraft and no voodoo or anything. <clears throat> I think that's what makes it seem like there is because on the surface it's like how did this get made and then you realize deep down that these sets and these things are, are usually mostly just comprised around like really um, <clears throat> really just a good group of people you know I always think that 
um, some of the best films are made by just the right group of people. And, and the director, Absolutely. the director, like, um, I was listening to this one thing about Stanley actually last night where they were saying how, um, Stanley's, uh, way of working was kind of like how Napoleon would be where he would, he would have some of his top guys, but he would switch the order of their importance to him. And so they were constantly wanting to like help, you know, it's kind of psychologically fucked. Well, but, that guy was a master of fuckery. I mean, look at what he did to Shelley Duvall shooting The Shining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he literally broke her mentally, you know. And and even the um the guy that that guy that was the cook there too, even the guy he made him do like 175 takes or something like that until he was like crying. <laughs> but even the the behind the scenes where he he's actually emotionally like crying, you know, saying how thankful he was of the experience, you know, because he knows he was a part of. Um, probably one of the best horror films ever created, I think, for my personal take, you know. So oh, I'd, I'd agree with that for sure. The shine is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, there's something that I can, I, I don't know, I, every time I watch it, and I watch it every couple months or so um, just to study it, but every time I watch it, I learn a little something more about how to make mature film. You know, it's a, there's there's a pacing, there's a setting, there's a mood. He builds the places, he creates this tension, he creates the buildup. The funny and odd thing is, is that I've read and I found out that St- uh, Stephen King actually doesn't like that film. Yeah, uh, that that made me not like Stephen King. Too. Yeah, that was the same reaction. I'm like, damn, that's a bummer, you know, because Stephen has written some really great books, some fun stuff. He has a hard time finishing his books, I think, but that's because he builds up the world so massively and it's hard to close out something so big not to yeah. criticize him i mean he's you know one of the fathers of the horror fiction realm so but he's doing something right um, i grew up uh, with reading stephen king when i was like sort of 16 or so hmm. for a couple of years the stand was like my favorite book the big it released a heavy big version of the stand like 600 or so pages yeah and yeah i used to carry that thing around with me it was just <laughs> i just loved it it's but, um, those things put you in a weird headspace at least for me, they make me feel like in a really dark headspace. I really live these things out when I read them. So it's hard for me to, to, to read Stephen's work all the time. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting that he didn't appreciate Stanley's um, adaptation, which I thought was very odd. But yeah, you know. You know that they actually did do a version of the Stephen King book. Mm. They, they, they did, did? dramatize it. Yeah, it's like six hours long or something. I might be four hours long. Um, it was a US, it was too long, it'll be like four hours, it was like two movies on US TV. Huh. I can't remember who directed it, but it's been out for a long time. <clears throat> it's probably been out for about 20 years. But um, it just pales in comparison, obviously, to, to Kubrick's work. That's so but, weird uh, that they'd be like, all right, I didn't like Stanley's, let's make another one. <laughs> yeah, but it's got all the topiary stuff in there and all that, you know, the um, Alice in Wonderland stuff and mm. yeah, all that, all that kind of, it's just literally from the book. Yeah, well, it's it's nowhere near as good because it's yeah, especially if you've seen the original. Well, I think there's a respect when you adapt adapt things. You know, I think that the, this is where a lot of things get lost in translation, where a lot of comic book uh, movies are getting lost. I think personally, is is where they think it needs to adapt page by page, and <clears throat> it doesn't really do that. I don't think. I don't. I don't think it's natural to do that. I think you're not respecting the form. You know, you're not respecting them. The, the different medium basically like when you open up a a film it's a completely different medium than comics comics have a completely different dynamic that you have to respect the page and how you tell a story with the real estate that you have but with movies you only you have a set and lock stage and it's all about pacing and editing and putting it together and that's a whole different dynamic i think personally i see it as a completely different device so when i see somebody adapt it right 
I really appreciate it, you know. But yeah, <clears throat> I used to uh, I used to draw comics back in the day. Oh yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. When I uh, when I first graduated from uni, it was back in '96, and my whole thing that I really wanted to do was to be a comic artist. Mm. And so I grew up on 2000 AD, like the the British comic. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Did Camp Kennedy to... work on that? Was that Camp Kennedy? The artist Camp. Did, did, did was the artist Camp Kennedy on that? Yeah, Tom Kennedy worked on yeah, he did all kinds of stuff. Road Trooper Dread. Um yeah, Star Wars. Tom Kennedy's yeah. He's so one of my favorites. Is, he's so good. He really is. He really is. I mean he's so old school as well. Like he's he's been brilliant for such a long time that it's yeah. easy to forget just how just how phenomenal he is. There's quite a lot of artists like that from two thousand AD, but it was a real breeding ground for, for talent. And as a kid, like reading it, <clears throat> it's just so exciting every Saturday. You know, every kind of eight pages you get a new artist and a new story. It's so um, cool. So cool. And you're getting things like, you know, you're getting introduced to things like Simon Bisley. I mean, when he did the Black Hole um, ABC Warriors, that was probably, it, Bisley's ABC Warriors Black Hole comic and Jim Cameron's Aliens were probably the two most definitive things that affected me the most in my kind of, you know, as far as like things that you just get completely obsessed by as a, as a kind of a, a growing young artist. Yeah. Yeah, there was like a, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm totally relating with you here. We're, we're 10 years apart, but there was a time in my life where there was these moments of just complete like inspiration and definitely like heavy metal and, and, and um, you know, yeah. Akira and all that stuff. It just like, it shook me up as a, as a youth. And maybe it's just because I'm nostalgic, but I try to look at this generation and I go like, what do they have? You know, like, what is it that they have that's now? <coughs> maybe, maybe I'm just blind to it. And maybe like, maybe no, there's a thing there for sure. You got to be careful with this stuff though. Cause I watched Akira um, again, about two months ago, I showed it to my girlfriend, got the nice, uh, nice blue red box set, had it sat on the shelf for a while, not watched it and always been, you know, saying, come on, I got to show you Akira and I'll show you Akira. So, you know, got it on the big TV, lights out, 5.1 sound up, you know, perfect home cinema setup, watched Akira. And she just couldn't get into it at all, just didn't get it. Hmm. Well, it's very Yodorowsky style, you know, like, I don't think you can, I, I mean, know. it's, well, yeah, I think, well, for me personally, I think it, it's, uh, it changes, I have a changed meaning for it every time I watch it. So I don't think you're supposed to necessarily get it. It's supposed to be like a feel and sensation film and it has multiple dimensions to it <coughs> but it's definitely not your like a to b film you know it's not it's yeah, i don't think I it's think... ever been that intentionally you know i think that from what i understand otomo actually consulted with yodorowsky to to talk about helping him finish the idea of the completion of at least the manga um, from what i understand if i'm wrong somebody that's listening to this let me know and send me some links in the podcast because that's from what i know so <clears throat> Yeah, but it's a definitely an interesting experience, you know. So, I love the um, I love all that stuff though. Seriously, like Ghost in the Shell. I was very excited looking at your um, your intro that you did because Ghost in the Shell is like one of my favorite films. Mm, yeah, for me, I know that like Akira, people usually put Akira there in the top spot for manga. Sure. But personally, I think Ghost in the Shell is better than Akira. Yeah, as Akira is, I just think Ghost in the Shell is just. It's just a whole other thing to me. Yeah, it just, I think it's the same for me as well. They're completely different monsters, so I have a hard time even relating them, and they do yeah. totally different dynamics for me. But yeah, one, they're both in their own spectrum for me, but definitely those two. Um, there's a lot of... Do you, is That brings me to my next question for this kind of stuff, is do you spend... Um, 
I mean, you said you're more of a recluse these days. Do you spend time um, digesting cinema and film? And are you into animation and stuff? I mean, is that something that you're interested in still? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to. I wouldn't say I was a recluse. It's just that I'm not. Um, you know, I'm not kind of out there chasing things that you might expect me to be doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it seems like you know, I get sent quite a lot of scripts, and you know, it's just not something that I'm really interested in. It takes a lot of time just to be reading scripts and stuff. Yeah, so there's there's things like that that I'm not doing. So it's not that I'm actually a recluse. Um, Okay, so I got it wrong. I've not got the Phantom of the Opera mask just yet. (laughs) Maybe when you start doing the film, you will have to be. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be a whole Yeah, it's just that I've kind of, you know, it's like I'll I'll be in town like three or four nights a week some weeks for meetings, and they're all film production meetings. But it's not stuff that I generally talk about because, um, you know, normally I prefer to do the work and then talk about it rather than talk about it when I'm doing it. Totally. Because it's, it's so easy to get this kind of false sense of accomplishment I've found where you, you know, people ask what you're doing and you're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a script and doing this and writing this story. And everyone's like, oh yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. And you feel, you get like positive reinforcement <laughs> back and you feel like you've accomplished something. Mm-hmm. You haven't, you weren't writing anything that day. You didn't do anything. <laughs> get ahead. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm really aware of those kind of psychological sort of traps that you can fall into really easily. Yeah. So trying to avoid that stuff. And also, you know, there's a lot of stuff I'm doing with my film projects at the moment that I don't want to talk about too much because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Because what yeah. I want to do is go away, make what's hopefully going to be a you know a nice film, and then have it just pop out there and people can just go and see it and hopefully have a nice surprise. Which is kind of what what happened with Moon because it didn't really get marketed, so people kind of found it by sort of just stumbling across it and Word passing it out to friends and things. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of had a nice organic kind of um, spread to it, which you don't get very often these days with films. Ambiguity is a, there's a power to it. There's a power to the mystique of things. I was talking a lot about this with my friend Anthony the other day about Kubrick's Kubrick's ability to be mis- like. Um, hidden almost you know didn't do interviews and all that kind of stuff i I find that to be really interesting there there might be come a time for myself included that i just decide to kind of disappear and focus on just whatever i'm doing um i already do a lot of work but i i find that i respect that what you're saying and i think that's a good way about it and there is a psychological thing that if you're just talking about it and it's like there's a false sense of hope. I completely agree with you, you know, and I think that you can get lost in some really weird psychological traps if you if you don't watch that. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, no, you're right. There's danger there. And there's also the other thing, too, where if you talk about what you're doing all the time with people, you, you're kind of getting into feedback loops that aren't necessarily appropriate, and those mm-hmm. can really affect you over time. Totally, man. I couldn't agree with you more. That's interesting. How did you come about learning a lot of this stuff? Is this from trial and error and discovering it yourself, or...? No, it's just um, I've always been quite keen on not wanting to make a really stupid mistake that I never saw in front of me. <laughs> Do you know that's, what I mean? Oh, I really, yeah, that's good. So many people just they just they just fuck things up, <laughs> and I just I'd hate to. I put so much effort into things when I do them. I'm I'm really keen to not fuck things up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it mainly comes from that, and just just trying to understand like. <clears throat> I sort of became aware quite a while ago that if I was going to get anywhere in life, it was going to be because of, um, well, a few things in combination, but one of them, the main one was, that was going to drive everything was my brain. If I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to direct a film, I need to get a film to direct. That can work two ways. Someone can come to me out of the blue, which will be the look side of things. Um, and the other one is I get a cool project together myself and, 
you know, sell that and make that. So that's the reason why I really got into writing, in, coming in as a writer director, was because the stuff that I was seeing out there just wasn't doing anything for me. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> just getting into that kind of headspace, um, I just found it to be really healthy. Do you know what I mean? It's a very powerful headspace. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's really, I've had a few talks with quite a few friends that I admire and, and respect in what they do. And I think a lot of it, one of them actually said that I'm not going to talk about what I'm doing until it's done. And I'm just going to have it out there like you just said. And I think there's a, a, there's a significant power to that because you just get it done. And I think that what you're saying too about being really cautious about how you do things so you don't fuck it up. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I've been doing a lot of internal thinking about that as well. And I think it's a very smart way of doing it, basically, you know. So and the, there's two schools of thought, right? There's a school of thought where it's just like, fuck it, grab it by the horns and let's go. And then there's the other one where it's like, um, let's just let's take a time to really think about it, you know. And, um, you know, I guess that's like the two different approaches you have, like the Stan the Stanley Cooper approach, I suppose, if we're going to put it quickly into film, or like the James Cameron kind of thing, where when he was making the first Terminator, where he was just going, you know, pushing hard. He and, was, but the thing is, though, that he's pushing hard and just going for it, but that all came from a very strategic, planned place. Absolutely, absolutely. With the thought, with the thought already done. Yeah. The thing is, with film, it's like, <clears throat> this is where... <clears throat> Excuse me. I really see the future of sci-fi film being in indie film because oh yeah, it has to be. It has to be yeah. because when you um, when you're doing you know when you're working on a film project, obviously, if you're working on a big project, by the time you're actually getting hired to work on it, they've already got a release date planned and everything's working on a clock. And the clocks for all the work at the front end just never seem to be enough to get the work to the place where it needs to get to. Yeah. Joss Whedon's got a, a phrase for this from Buffy that he talks about cookie dough. Do you know that? No, I never heard of it. He's talking. He's referring to like um, an idea that's just not had enough time to cook. <laughs> that's so a good. It's that, good analogy. It's, yeah, you pull it out of the oven and it's still dough, and you want serving <laughs> people dough, warm dough, rather than toasty biscuits. Uh, that's perfect. That's a good analogy. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so much contemporary sci-fi is cookie dough. <laughs> when, you, when you're off the grid like I'm at the moment, I can make sure that I've got right now at least. I can make sure I've got enough time to do things properly. So it's like with uh, my first feature archive, you know, we've been working on the story for that for like two and a half years now, mm. and we've almost got the script ready. But it's just taken, we've, ta we've spent a lot of time building the world, building the characters, getting it where it needs to be, making, just crafting like the journey of the film, like the emotional arc of the film. Yeah. And making sure that it's, it's, it's providing the sort of optimal ride. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I think, it, well, that's just, you're respecting, you're, I think for me, the way I say it is that you're just respecting what you're doing, basically, you know, you're not trying well, to sabotage yourself with it, you know? Well, if I'm going to put so much effort into something, I, I need to do everything <coughs> I can to make sure it's good, right? I mean, you know, when you're doing this kind of stuff, you just got to put so much effort in and you've got to put everything you've got into it. You literally no have to, yeah. yeah. There's no point doing that unless you really, you've got a shot at doing something decent on the other end. You might as well just go and sit in the park and have a sandwich. <laughs> it's like, why kill yourself? If you don't believe in what you're doing, you don't think you've got something that could really work, I couldn't, just go and have a sandwich in the park. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that's really what separates the the, the, the people that are doing things and the people that aren't, is the, is the level of, of um, sacrifice. I mean, every, every, all the filmmakers and all the artists that I know that are extremely successful, that I've talked to, 
they all have that same ingredient where they just go, you know, this is this is everything. This is I I put everything that I can into this every day. Um, I have to, you know. There's no other way. You're born with this kind of like, I don't know. It's not a curse, but you're born. It's like it's this. It's so weird though. It's such a weird drive because you've got this like real sort of insane like focus to 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 get this thing like just right. Yeah. And then you just put it out there for everyone to just flick popcorn at. <laughs> pretty much and that's that's one thing that really threw me off is because i've worked on a couple of feature films and the funny thing that i found is i i would devote so much energy and time to to, to the my little my little small piece to the film to quickly go watch it and be like oh what the heck you know and, it, and <laughs> it's, it's soul crushing <laughs> soul crushing you know it literally is you just go like yeah. damn uh, i'm not gonna get that time back you know, and, <laughs> yeah. I, and I got to be careful about how I use my time. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, there's no, there, you can't get that stuff back, you know, and it's all subjection, you know, uh, the, the older I get, the more I change and what I love out of certain things, obviously. Um, and I got to always remember that too. Do you have that as well? When you kind of, it's not like, it's like not becoming cynical, but it's you're you're changing basically and your tastes are changing. Is it easy for you to find your 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 child self that was inspired from you know your first go at Star Wars? Was that well? I had a really interesting thing that happened a while back where <clears throat> I was up at my mum and dad's house up in Yorkshire, and <clears throat> excuse me, I was just going through a load of my old stuff, and I've got pretty much every piece of artwork I've ever done in my entire life is upstairs in a bunch of boxes in the attic. So I was like, you know, some of this stuff's getting pretty crinkly now. Um, so I thought I'd better record it. So I took uh, a nice camera up, set up a rostrum on the tripod, um, you know, just set up like a, a nice little little sort of botched together photography studio in the conservatory and just sort of photographed it all, just some digital versions of it all. And along the way, you know, I couldn't help but just getting lost in all these old comics that I used to draw. Mm. And it was absolutely fascinating looking at this stuff going, I can remember doing it all. I'm just looking at it now, just thinking like how naive my brain was back then <laughs> like basically how much there's there was three things that were just such massive influences to me when i was like between sort of 12 and like sort of 18 uh, which were aliens robocop and predator and <laughs> everything i was drawing was either aliens robocop or predator or another comic that i'd you know like an original comic that i'd made up which was basically aliens predator or terminator or all of them kind of combined or different versions of them. Every panel, people are saying lines from one or three of those films. <laughs> all the characters do is just, it's just little bits of those films all chopped up. It's ridiculous. And I'm looking at it and I'm just thinking, what the hell was I thinking? Like, it's this weird, like, psychological, because I spent so much time doing these things. And yeah. it's like this weird kind of psychological regurgitation of the stuff that I just loved into this weird, um, I don't know what it is, like, like I was kind of trying to channel it back out for something that felt really important when I was doing it. But obviously it's just like, now it's just like a bunch of old kind of badly drawn cartoons. But when I was doing it at the time, it felt really important. Sure. I remember it feeling yeah. important. Um, <clears throat> yeah. But you get lost. Stuff, yeah. Though. It's like your intention is there, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I think it's just because you're, because some of these things, at least the way I look at it is, and I mentioned it in Ghost in the Shell, is like when the original creators create these things, they have so much energy in it that it attracts other people and it just, it spurs off to different things, you know, like that's why we did the Ghost in the Shell thing. It's because it was almost like, 
we love you so much. Here you go. Like, here's some effort, you know? Like, <clears throat> Actually, do you know what? It's, I mean, obviously, the, the way that um, you've pulled off the, the Ghost in the Shell piece is uh, a little bit more impressive than my kind of 12-year-old comics. But, well, um, different ages, you know? <laughs> There's 40 people working on that Ghost in the Shell <laughs> thing off and on. So uh, I was just in my mum's kitchen with a, with a couple of, couple of felt-tip hands. But <laughs> <laughs> Still, but, you're uh, doing it, though, the action of doing it, you know? Yeah. Sorry, you're yeah, saying. It's a, yeah, it's a strange thing, but yeah, what I have noticed that my views on things change a lot. And one of the things that I do now, which I'm very conscious, oh uh, well, I, I've sort of seen it. Look, yeah, I kind of was aware of it before before then. But one of the things I'm doing now is I'm actually sizing weapons accurately. And when I was a kid, I'd be all about the big gun barrels. <laughs> and yeah. now, now every time I, I mean, I was designing weapons uh, last night. Um, every time I design a weapon now, it's you know, it's. I often go towards smaller barrels now because I find it makes the weapons look more threatening. As long as they've got a really good firing effect. Yeah. Look at um, like um, in Blade Runner. You know, the gun that he uses is pretty small. It's kind of like a Wild West kind of gun. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, do you remember Battlefield? Was it twenty one forty eight? The computer game. Uh, yeah, I remember hearing that. I remember not hearing that, but I remember seeing some pictures from it a long time ago. <laughs> it, it had some mechs in there, and there was a couple of mechs that you could get in and drive around in the game. <clears throat> and they were one of the best designed units I've ever seen in a computer game. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen a computer game that had accurately sized guns. And they're these, they're these like really big chunky mechs, and they've got these little pointy things sticking out the front, like they almost <laughs> and they're machine guns. And they're the actual size a machine gun would be if this vehicle was real. And it was the first time, I mean, it was, what was that, 10, 12 years ago, something like that. <clears throat> it was the first time I'd ever seen that done in a game where they'd actually put that kind of thought onto vehicle-mounted weapons that weren't supposed to be a real vehicle. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it really, really resonated with me. Yeah, there's, a, I mean, that's awesome. I, there's a lot of things that kind of come through for me as well through the times of just acknowledging you know, different things that basically catch your attention, right? Because there's only so much you can process, especially when you're younger, because it's just like boobs and cereal, <laughs> or for your case, tea. Mine was <laughs> so like boob- tea, guns, and boobs. Oh, yeah, tea, like guns, and boobs, yeah. <laughs> but the things that do stick with you, and, and they change your perception on things, um, yeah, they they stick out. Like I was going to say, like the good thing, I guess it's something a related love is, is Ghost in the Shell. When I first watched it, I was like, what the fuck am I watching? I watched, I saw it when I was like 12 or something like that. I'm like, this is insane. And then all the, the tank and everything and how it was mimicking oh. a crab. And um, this <clears> is the technology and, and, and everything. This is before Matrix, obviously. Yeah. And so I was like, what the fuck? Alternate space. And like, you know, and, and so when I first watched it, I didn't take in all the, like the very high level thinking of the theory of what was actually happening. And not until like I'm older where I can look past <clears throat> the surface level where actually what I was doing is I was working on it so much. I would watch it every week, just, um, I'd, I'd watch it. Um, and then I would listen to the English subtitles and then watch it with the uh, non subtitles and just watching it. But when I would just listen to it, I mean, the English uh, adaptation is bad. <clears throat> I don't think it probably it picks up on the nuances, but there's this really crazy psychological thing that happens and I didn't get it. So that's what I love about it is there's so many layers to it. And that's what makes it a masterpiece to me because it's like a really great film or piece of uh, entertainment should give you multiple la- la- layers based off your interaction with it. And 
Um, <clears throat> I was recently watching Moon. I actually was watching it last night just because I know we're going to have our talk and I wanted to get my brain familiar. I hadn't seen it for a year or so. And it was like that film also gave me a lot of interesting things too, inspiring things too, because I know you guys did that on a very small budget, right? Yeah. <laughs> you said that like pain, well, like I just opened up a wound. All the work I had to do on that film as well. <laughs> you and Duncan, so you guys are re- you guys were close um, from like grade school or something, or how did no, you guys met, link up? Um, we met. Uh, oh, what was it? Oh. Um, a games company called Elixir Studios back in 1998. Okay. I guess. Yeah, that was about right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was we, I was working there, and then yeah, Duncan started working there too. And uh, I mean, I didn't know who he was for like a year, but um, he was just like the you know the he came on to write uh, some of the storyline stuff. Um, we we're doing a, a game called Republic: The Revolution, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be this big. Um, this big simulator of like a um, kind of a power struggle in a in a Soviet Cold War country, and uh, <clears throat> the whole game I had massive ambitions and ended up not delivering on any of them. But um, <laughs> I was really How dare you? Oh, I did. No, oh, it was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> there's a chap who ran the company. Was a chap called Dennis Savis, who was uh, credited as being the creator of Theme Park. Mm. Um, one of uh, Peter Morning's protégés from uh, Bull- the Bullfrog Days, Dan Guilford, and he'd got a load of venture capital and got like how much money did he have? Something like fourteen million or eighteen million or something. Whoa, loads of money. Um, and he was supposed to do three games for IDOS. Republic was supposed to be the first one, and he had a chap working with him called Tim Clark, who was a programmer, and Tim had designed this Infinite Polygon engine. And the big claim that you got when you joined the company was, okay, uh, Demi saw this little showman thing you like to do where he'd be like, all right, sit down, here's your computer, here's your copy of 3DS Max. Okay, um, I want a helicopter gunship. How many polygons have you got? And I'm like, I don't know, I need to know about the He's like, no, you've got infinite polygons, imagine that. And like, look at your face and just kind of watch your mind being blown. uh, (laughs) It was always going to be bullshit because, you know, there's no such thing as infinite polygons. There's obviously a trick somewhere. And it's like, okay, what's the trick? And what if the trick (laughs) works? And the trick broke. Uh, When they were about four years into production, they'd spent all the company's money. Um, Yeah, and the trick broke. And the trick was basically what they'd do is when things got to a certain size on screen, like 8 pixels or 16 pixels whatever that geometry was would be rendered out and made into a sprite. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and that all works fine as a, as a trick, as long as you don't have any dynamic lighting. As soon as you put dynamic lighting in there, it's all shagged. I mean, this was a long time ago, so, I mean, you know, these, these things aren't really applicable these days. But back then, um, you know, Demis was getting all the press in, and like every, every month we're in all the, all the games press. We had a running development thing every month in Edge magazine, and... There was just articles in the press. There was journalists coming around all the time. It was weird. It was like kind of being like sort of mini celebrities because we'd be in all the games. I remember I had some friends came down from Yorkshire and we went into W. H. Smiths, uh, which is a big news agency in, in the UK. And I was in the. I was like, I'll come over here. I'll show you this stuff. And we stood in front of the the computer games section, and I picked up like four or five different magazines, and each one of them had like pictures of me at my computer with an article of the company, and all, all my friends are in it and stuff, and. You know, it was just like, it was it was weird because no other games company was getting that kind of attention. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was all because Demis was like cracking the whip of his marketing engine. 
Yeah. And I remember my grandma thought it was amazing because I took, you know, she always, she was always just really interested in what was going on. And I went up to see her one time in Yorkshire and I took a load of the magazines up and I was going, hey, look, we're in all these magazines this month. And my nana was like, what the hell's going on? Like, you're in, you're famous and stuff. I was like, obviously, that's not what's going on. But um, <laughs> you know, my, my grand was like, you know, thought it was amazing. <clears throat> and so this project got talked about shitloads. Every trade show, everyone wants to see a demo. Then this is like, no, nah, we're not brewing a demo this year because we're concentrating on doing the job. So it's like, okay, that's fine. Um, got away with it for four years and then basically got called on it and they had to deliver to IDOS and the whole thing was just a mess. Oh, no. Um, but I mean, I left after two years, so I was out of it by then. Oh, okay. But um, anyway, yeah, fun times in the games industry in the 90s. Oh, yeah. But, um, was... Yeah, that's where I met Duncan. And he was, he'd just finished film school at the time, but he had a, he had a graduation film he had to hand in, which was a thing called Whistle that we ended up doing. But they had a weird thing where you could, you could go through all the, all the kind of course um, that, as it stood and then leave, and then you wouldn't actually graduate until you handed in a graduation f- film. Excuse me, which you could do like years later. Huh. So he was in that weird thing where he'd finished, he'd finished the course, like the degree, but he hadn't handed in a degree film. And so one of the things that he needed to do was to do a degree film. So we, yeah, spent ages just coming up with all kinds of stuff and ended up shooting a short film called Whistle, which is on the Moon DVD, weirdly enough. Is it part of like the behind the scenes part? I never watched uh, it. I, don't I know, have it's just on there somewhere. I mean, I wouldn't rush out and watch it because it's not the greatest piece <laughs> ever. But um, yeah, you know, it's all formative, right? Yeah. No, I had a, if, I had a good time listening to you guys chat on the behind the scenes. Um, that's how I was like, I really need to get you on here because if you if you're listening and you haven't watched Moon or you haven't seen the behind the scenes or listen to them they're they're good fun i like how your commentary is mostly just trying to make a joke or something silly about what what, what was happening and everybody else is trying to be like dude this is serious we must talk seriously about this scene duncan and, got really pissed off at me after that <laughs> did, did he yeah um, we were on the bus on the way home and he was like oh you ruined that and i was like oh, what are you talking about and he's like oh you just just pissed me out too much and I was like, I mean, my take on it was like, you know, if you just bought a film and you've watched it and stuff, I don't know, like, why not Why not just try and muck about a little bit? It's like, you know, there's a time to be serious and a time where it doesn't really matter. Sure. Well, <laughs> I think that, um, I think you're just being yourself and having fun and, and, and I think you just get an enjoyment out of things, you know, so, which makes sense, okay. you know. Um, it's nice when you can, I mean, you know what the whole, the whole sort of filmmaking thing is like? You need to be around people that you can kind of have a bit of a laugh with. Oh, yeah, because it's really challenging work. <laughs> and yeah, if you can't laugh about stuff. it, then you'll go crazy. You'll burn yeah. out fast, yeah. Yeah, uh, so one of the things that I really look for in... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in the process of building my own um, sort of film family at the moment. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to have found some fantastic people. That yeah, that's awesome. That mean, and, uh, yeah. Success would be <clears> throat> great throat> then, yeah. Yeah, it's just like some really nice nights out at the pub and stuff. But, you know, it's just really good when you can just kind of get your kind of filmmaking family and go to the pub and just have a nice time with everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. I think that really helps with the overall sense of creating something together because you guys all own it and you're a part of it, you know. That's a smart way of looking at it. Did you learn a lot from working directly with Duncan so closely, seeing the whole process I did, but, too? I, I did, but, I mean, to be honest, a lot of it's kind of doing the opposite. But, um, yeah, I learned a lot for sure. Yeah, being on set and stuff. I imagine, I mean, I guess 
Well, I guess what I, I mean, I'm just projecting here. I'm just trying to figure out like where a lot of your muse for creating your own stuff was. But I guess it's probably from all the way in your drawing your own comic books and then all of a sudden... Uh, do, you know what it, do you know what it really is? <coughs> it's, it's something that I, I don't talk about it very often, but whilst we're on this now, we'll, I'll, I'll just mention this quickly and I hope it doesn't make me sound like an arse. It, it's kind of like... I think you, you touched on something, on something like this um, uh, a little while back. Basically, I look around now, and I look at, um, I imagine myself now, if I was like 14 now, you know, what would I be into? Yeah. And what would I be oblivious to, which is actually brilliant, and I just don't know about? Um, and if I was 14 now, I'd probably be into computer games more than anything. Yeah. I, I would like to think that I would probably be reading quite a lot as well. And I like to think that I would have at least found Ian M. Banks, if not Philip K. Dick at this point. And hopefully that would lead me down a hole that would get me to properly experience things like Blade Runner. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just by following that hole. Because Philip K. Dick to Blade Runner, to the movie Blade Runner, is probably a, like one of the best ways. I, I did a job recently. I um, Just before Christmas, I directed the intro film to Titanfall. And okay. Um, I was working with a really great team of people at a company called Spov out in East London. Yes, Bob's cool. I know a lot of those guys. They're really nice oh. people. Yeah. Yeah, Spov are great. I've been I've did a couple of jobs with those guys last year. <laughs> really nice people. Um, yeah, yeah, really cool bunch. Um, and I was working. You don't know um, Rebecca, do you? Um, I might. Is she a producer or? She's an editor. Actually, do you know do you know Rachel Chu? Maybe. Let me see my email. She's one of, she was working there as a modeler. Anyway, I was having a chat with Rachel, uh, who was on the team, and we were um, we were chatting about stuff, and it turns out she was talking about um, Colonial Marines game, and she's like, yeah, I think it was, we were talking about something anyway. We were, she, was, she was getting really excited about some alien stuff, and I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. I've seen all this like, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I've seen it all. It's the same. It's yeah. the same. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you know, obviously this is Aliens. This is the film Aliens. And she hadn't seen it. Oh, God. <laughs> and I was like, you have got to be shitting me. She's like, me too. And I was like, you haven't seen Aliens. You're working at Spov. You're doing Titanfall. You haven't seen Aliens. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, I don't know. just not bothered. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, it just blew my mind. It's like, holy shit, go <laughs> right now, watch Aliens immediately. Yeah. Don't do anything else with your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I had the I, same kind of problem when I, I just finally watched uh, um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, I think it was, finally all the way through, and I felt like such a jackass. <laughs> but sorry, you know you're I, saying. I, last year, I, well, I'd never really been into Westerns. I oh. did the same thing. Um, sorry, not last year, it was the year before. I sat down and I watched all the famous westerns in like oh, two God. weeks. Took two oh, weeks off work. I watched um, uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Absolutely amazing. Once upon um, a time in the West, you see that? It's, yeah, yeah. Fistful of Dollars, few dollars more. Uh, Pale Rider, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. All of them. You know, just all of the all of the westerns that I could like think of. Yeah. And holy shit, it was a massive eye opener for me. Oh, they're and brilliant films. I felt, mean, felt pretty stupid for not being on the Western train earlier, but same. And you realize how influential they are for a lot of directors that, of things that we love, actually. And then you think, yeah. then you realize if you go into Japanese cinema, and you realize how much influential that was to the Western stuff. Yeah. Then if yeah. you go back before that to like Japanese plays and like the. You know what? This is this is a good point because this is something that. 
that I really appreciate um, from the like the few like backwards and forwards emails and stuff we've had because I, I I got that sense of about you about sort of looking back down the tunnel to see where things come from. Yeah, you have to. Because it's something that I you, you have to write, and it's so important. And so many people don't do that. And it's like you know, look at something like Blade Runner. Look at how wonderful Blade Runner is. And then look at all of the people that contribute to that project and look at what their influences were and, yeah. and study that stuff, you know, and oh, that yeah. might yeah. to a second level. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, at, look at how influential Metal Hurlant was to Ridley Scott with both Alien and Blade Runner. Tremendously. And imagine that Ridley Scott, imagine that Ridley Scott had never picked up a copy of, uh, a copy of Metal Hurlant and just like, well, didn't okay. Dan O'Bannon give him, like show him Geiger and all that stuff? And, and I thought that... Well, wasn't Jodorowsky, they're all working on Dune, and then that crash, and then yeah, really Scott's like, capitalize, whoosh. <laughs> yeah, take everybody. We're going um, here. <laughs> fair player, though. I mean, you know, Dan O'Bannon is Dan, one of the yeah. most influential people in science fiction, I think, in the last 50 years. When you look at, it was like this nexus of, um, I mean, just that alone, like working with, uh, working with Jodorowsky, um, through that connection, Salvador Dali introducing Giga to Jodorowsky yep. yep. and Dan O'Bannon being right there when it like sat next to him when it happens. Um, all this crazy stuff going on. Then him having an idea for a story, going back to um, going back out to LA, sleeping on uh, Ronald Schusett's couch. Yeah, super having, upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah, having the first thirty minutes of the of Alien, trying to get into it, thinking it's maybe like a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, Ronald, doing a deal with Ronald Schusett where Ronald Schusett's got the rights to Total Recall, which at the time was just, you know, Philip K. Dick's options were still around at the time. Yeah. Um, so he got the, um, they did a deal and Ronald Schusett said, yeah, I'll help you out with your project on this alien thing if you help me out with uh, Total Recall so I don't know how to make it to a film. So they teamed up on that, ended up making a pair of phenomenal films together. Um, the Dan O'Bannon connection goes back so, in so many places. Like It does. He, you know, he did Dark Star, and then after that, when um, George Lucas needed the motion graphics for Star Wars... Yeah, I know, it's, it's so Dan cool. ...to do them. So yeah. Dan O'Bannon did the Death Star attack sequence, all the yep. computer and stuff. And back then, that's yeah. like really, that was high-tech stuff. It's high-tech, you know? but when you look back at it now, <clears throat> it's got this beautiful vintage quality to it. Oh, I love the heck out of it. I was recently um, studying, that, studying it like crazy, um, just because of how simple it was. There was a there was some things that I had to do to try to figure out how to mimic certain things, and I was trying to figure out where they came from. And I did I have like all the Star Wars books, and I was I went through and I found all the the pieces, and then I and I started to look really closely at the <laughs> with like a magnifying glass to go like who's what's that yeah, say? This is, this is what and I'm it says Dan O'Bannon. I'm like what the yeah. fuck? Oh my god! <laughs> and I was like, yeah, my brain expanded. And I was like, oh, this must have been in transition. So he made Dark Star, and then everybody was like, oh, there's this independent guy who's do he's trying to do different things. And, and Dark Star is this really interesting like film. It's it you know it's 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 it it's um. It's not a classic, but it's it is a classic in a, in its own sense if you know the context of the creator. And yeah, it's an important piece. I'm very fond of that stuff. Yeah, it's well, you're a fan of sci-fi. You're a fan of that era, though I can tell. And so, understanding where this guy comes from, and then how Yodorowsky's reached out to him, because I always look at it like this, and I think you you look at it the same way. And I guess that's why I try to create the Ghost in the Shell, and all my projects are kind of like that. Whereas, like even with my my friend Anthony, who's one of my best friends, that we create almost all our stuff together, is we create these things almost like beacons, right? 
throw out to the world and see who who really sticks to it. And that's how you find collaborators where you go, oh, you really understand this beyond the surface level. Like you you understand, you know who Dan O'Bannon is. You know, like if I ask somebody they don't know who that is, I go, oh, you just haven't discovered that level of of of, of how great this world actually becomes. Yeah, it's big. Dig and find treasure. Oh, there's so much. I mean, my whole wall is just covered by books where I just discover like, oh, like this guy does that. That guy does this. Oh, that's really interesting. Like, I found I, I like two years ago I fell onto the work of um, Begzinski because I was looking at a lot of Geiger stuff and I was like, man, this is interesting. But um, and I found some random thing through Google or something, and then I found this guy. Have you seen his work before? I'm sure you have. Well, hang on, what's he called? I don't remember. Begzinski. I think he's a Polish artist. Um, B e k s i n s k i. Um, no, you've oh, seen his work. Yeah, before. yeah, of course. <clears throat> Very surreal yeah. and interesting, but um. No, I don't know. It's just like you said, but the, he was one of those gems. I'm just using him as a reference because I'm holding his book. I'm looking at it right now. But and 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 these are just one of those gems that you discover. Even like Mobius, you know, it's like, oh, this is all like the the art that I really loved from heavy metal, you know, um, the, the American ad, adaptation. But I'm like, damn. And then I I, I stumble upon the Incal, and then I go upon like the Meta Baron oh, stuff, and I'm like, oh, it's just like it's such a crazy read. <laughs> it is. It really is. It's definitely like. It's not. It's unconventional. It's that's the same thing. I get this. I get the same kind of thing from um, Akira. I think that I get the same kind of feel. I, I look at Atomo as being this very smart, incredibly talented person, and he's he's not trying to think of like the one, two, three act kind of like resolve. He does. That's not necessarily. If you were to create something as vast and infinite and big as 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 what he created, I, I, I think it'd be a shame almost if it was like a. You know, they they walked into the Disney sunset. You know, I'd I'd be kind of upset about it actually. I like that it remains mysterious and omnipotent, like just odd and weird, because it's supposed to, it's supposed to be like that. I think you know, but that's just me personally. That's the way I consume it. So, hey, there was a, a little Dan O'Bannon thing that I just wanted to mention. I wasn't you probably yeah, know about this already, but you know, um, you know the whole thing about Ridley Scott getting really lucky when he met Dan O'Bannon. No, I don't know how they got in connection. So what was that? Oh, well, um, Dan O'Bannon had the alien uh, alien script and it was all getting shopped around. <clears throat> and Dan O'Bannon wanted to direct it originally. But um, when Fox came on board, they um, they got Ridley Scott. You know, just done the, um, uh, the Duelists. Duelists, yeah, that was <clears throat> his own film that he, after doing all those commercials, he self-funded to do it himself, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So Another example like, of just going and doing things, you know? Yeah, get off your ass and do it. Get off your ass and fucking do uh, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, so the Alien Project came with Dan O'Bannon, and Dan O'Bannon's like, okay, really, Scott, are you directing it? That's um, right. Here's, here's this guy, uh, Giga, you might want him to do the Alien. Here's this guy, Mobius, you might want him to do your space suits, you know? Yeah. Here's this Chris Foss, you, might, you know, all, this, all these people, Ron Cobb, <laughs> uh, brings everyone with him. Um, so Ridley Scott's uh, just like, great, okay, cool, yeah, we're on. And uh, when they were, you know, like you were talking about the um, the Metal Hurlant influence, where Mobius had been out in Paris with Jodorowsky trying to mount June, for, he'd been out there for like a year or so, a year and a half, yeah. and so he'd been working with all of the Metal Hurlant guys, like Mobius and, um, and Jodorowsky, like, you know, founders, um, so he knew all that inside out, and then when, when Ridley Scott got into Metal Hurlant, he saw a strip, a 12-page comic called... Long Tomorrow? Yes. Yes. You know about this. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, written by Sorry, yeah. Band, Drawn by Mobius. Yes. And look at that. It's fucking it's awesome. 
It is Blade, Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> the pillars outside the Bradbury, yeah. the whole thing is Blade Runner. Yeah. And you, you know, there's no way you can say that Ridley Scott didn't. <laughs> and that's like Dan O'Bannon, like basically influencing Ridley Scott on such a huge level on Blade Runner. Because if he hadn't got that script written and teamed up with Mobius to do it, Ridley Scott would never have seen it. Blade Runner would probably look quite different. Yeah, and hats off to a guy like Ridley Scott who can see something special and wonderful and understand how to. to um, translate it basically you know oh and, he definitely used to be able to do that but i mean that's <laughs> honestly yeah i, I, I know that I, was one of the really funny uh blogs that you had posted about prometheus because <clears throat> i had worked on it very little um and i was so excited um when i heard that the world was going to open up again because i was so on that train and yeah you, we grew amazing. up on that yeah you and i grew up on it it was it i was like oh the fuck you know phenomenal oh was, yeah it was, it was, it sold it so well. It really fooled us all. If you, um, I've, I haven't done it. I haven't given it a chance cause I haven't had time to do it, but I really want to listen to Ridley Scott's commentary from all of my friends who, um, have, are, you know, give a gripe about it or whatever the film, um, they say how challenging it was for, even for Ridley Scott to make that film. Um, even he was making like, basically just stating like, you know, I, not making excuses because I don't think that's his style. I have to listen to it, so I'm not. I'm just speaking out of context from what my friends were telling me. But apparently, it was really challenging. Like he was getting second guessed. That was kind of fucking the film up, which it kind of probably led to its demise. Um, which is what it is, which is what it feels like personally. Um, that's it was just. I, I think the big problem with Prometheus <laughs> is that it, it was all it was all cookie dough writing. Yeah, it's like you make rules and break them instantly. It's like, what the hell? Yeah, a lot of the films now are like that. I can't get into them. They're just like, what the hell? The big problem that I had with it was, um, I see it in a lot of his work, was Demi Lindlos writing. What he does, he's he's, honestly, he's like the big snake oil salesman. What he he does, comes up with a really good idea, um, like a premise, and just starts writing. He doesn't figure out where it's going, and he never pays off anything. He's all about setting up the mystery and the, well, ooh, what King. about this, what about that? <laughs> ooh, hey, all yeah. these like moments. Yeah. None of it pays off, ever. Yeah. And uh, it's just, you just feel like a mug when I get to the end. Well, yeah. And then it's like, oh, no, it's, there's a lot of apologists out there. So some people really enjoy it, but, you know, they, they say, like, oh, no, you've got to figure out the meaning yourself and look deeper and do a lot of research. And no, if you read this yeah. book, you don't watch Prometheus. And it's like, bollocks to that. It's got to stand on its own right. It's a film. I've paid to go and see a film, and it's like, I don't mind things having depths and stuff at all, and extra yes. meaning, all that yes. stuff's great. But, you know, I don't want my um, spaceman explorers to just take the helmet off when they're in the alien derelict, do you know what I mean? Just don't yeah. do that. Don't do all that stupid stuff. Don't <laughs> just, oh, God, it makes, me, it makes me angry talking about it. Yeah, well, definitely. I think, I think the reason why it upsets guys like you and I or just kind of bothers us is because, um, I mean, I... I my hats off to anybody that makes a film. I, I you know like um, I I want to make sure I'm not stepping on toes. I re, I really respect anybody that goes out there and, and puts their heart out to make something. But I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that there was an issue with how things were written. And I and he did the same thing with Lost, where you build up this really beautiful, amazing premise, and it gets your attention, it pulls you in. And it almost like it blue balls you. It blue balls you, and you're just like, "What the fuck?" You know, you're. You know, do you know what it is? I can be really, I can be really specific as to why I get annoyed with Damon Lindelof's writing. Mm. I can be really specific because you should be. I was, 
I was such a fan, honestly, a huge fan. I adored Lost. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, the first two couple seasons are so good. Oh, the Hatch, all of that shit. Desmond, all of that. The stuff with Ben Linus, Ben and Locke. That stuff was great. Yeah, it's great. The, the thing is about Lost is that when it first came out, it kind of came out of nowhere. It was a big hit show. And, uh, you know, I was, I was just loving it. Yeah. Um, at the time, I'd never seen Gilligan's Island, so I was unaware of all the parallels and stuff, but I just I didn't care. I just loved it, you know, so it was great. So at the end of season one, um, and if you remember, but they did something very, um, very ahead of its time. They did a, a whole kind of pre, like sort of between the t- season one and season two, they did this big thing on the internet where they set up all these Dharma Foundation websites and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there was a whole Easter egg hunt on the I internet. I love that. Yeah. Wait, there was all this stuff. There was, I think it was like phone numbers to call and shit. Like, there's all there was a lot things. of crazy stuff. The symbols yeah, and like people emails doing emails and stuff and <laughs> all this stuff. And it was fantastic. I've never seen anything great like marketing. it. Great marketing, yeah. Yeah, it was great. And there was so much, um, so much attention being brought to these guys because no one really, you know, they just kind of came out of nowhere. And one of the things that I, there was one interview in particular, I need to dig this out, because I used to argue with Duncan about Lost, and I was, <laughs> like, I was like, this thing's going to be amazing, and he's like, he was saying like, this is all going to be bullshit, and I was like, this, <laughs> it's not, because there was a, an interview that they did, um, I think it was Damon Lindoff and J.J. Abrams, if I recall, um, I know that Damon Lindoff was in this interview, and they were talking, and the interviewer was like, because at the time, everyone was saying, there was theories about what was going on. And the big, the big front runner in the theories was that it was purgatory, and they're all in purgatory. Yeah. The big thing that they were doing, saying in the interview was like, it's not purgatory. We're debunking that. It's all these things that you're saying. It's not any of these. Mm. And but we're not going to tell you what's really going on, obviously, because we want to keep it a surprise. But what they said is that every single thing that you see is contributing towards an end goal, and the end goal will just will blow you away because it's all been pre-thought out. Um, you're going to see lots more weird shit. And it's all going towards a common goal. And when it gets there, it'll all make sense. Every single bit of it. The Paul <laughs> Bears, Walt being wet, talking backwards, the comics, the numbers, all of that stuff will just click onto one focus point and just be like, pow. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Can you and imagine if like, it did? <laughs> I was like, holy shit, this is going to be the best ever mystery ever. And it kept me with the show. And I went all the way through. And I was like the biggest <laughs> fan of this thing ever. And at the end of every season, or whenever something significant happened, I used to watch it with Duncan. And we'd watch something, and we'd watch an episode, and I'd turn around to him at finish, and I'd go, holy shit, look at that, this is going to be amazing, I can't wait to see how this works out. And he'd just like look at me and shake, shake his head. And I was like, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. And we used to argue about this in the pub loads. And I was like, look, because my whole defense was that they said it was going somewhere. And so I can't wait to see what it is. I mean, I have no idea. You know, I think about this stuff a lot, and I have no idea where it's going. <laughs> I spent a lot of time trying to figure Lost out. And I was like, I just can't see it. I can't see where they're going. And it got right to the end, and I was, I was totally stoked. I was there, and I was like, come on, <laughs> let's have it. Let's have it. Yeah. And then Lost finished. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you. I've been here for seven, se- six, seven seasons, whatever. It's like, I've been here the whole time. I've given you all my love. And I just feel like you've just mugged me off completely. Yeah, and, yeah. And that really really annoyed the shit out of me because i was so up for that whole thing and i loved that show so much yeah that when i got the rug pulled out from underneath me like that and i realized that they'd been bullshitting in those early interviews i just lost all of my respect and it was really hard to because you know i'm when i become a fan of something i can you know i like to think of myself as being quite a loyal fan 
And it really, it really bothered me that the way that they'd been so um, sort of, they just, they just bullshitted in those interviews and I'd given them so much time and defended them so many times to, <laughs> to people and just been so there, just like on the journey all the way, just waiting for this big payoff. Yeah. Just to know. And when I look back at it, I was like, that's just cheap shit. All this stuff's just cheap. Yeah. I think it's just I think... Ch- chuck shit out there. It's just cheap. And it now it, it made me really study um, that form of writing a lot more because you see it all over the place. Another example of this would be The Dome. Do you remember the TV show, The Dome? Uh, no, I never watched it. Okay, that was a Stephen King, uh, Stephen King thing. Like in Dorm appears. Do you know the premise? No, there's a lot of those, though, right? Didn't he have the Tommy Knockers yeah. and stuff? He's had a lot of those like TV adaptations oh. things. Yeah, I think the Dorm was a new thing. Um, the Tommy Knockers came from an old book, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just I just see these things, and you just know that someone's got an idea for something, and that's all it's really needed to get the thing into production. Sure. They've all just gone, yeah, great. Let's all just take the money and make the thing. Yeah. Anywhere, and ultimately, all it's going to do is lead you to an unsatisfying conclusion. Um, I mean, Prometheus is a great example of this, and you know, I would love it if Damon Lindelof could just figure it out and go back to making me love him again. Because <laughs> honestly, everything I see right now, well, I mean, I don't know if he's got it inside him or not, but if <laughs> if I would, I, I just want to be a fan, and after having that experience with Lost with the interview and just basically being lied to. You know, and then having things like Prometheus and just going, what the fuck? This yeah. isn't like the trailer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it no, just, absolutely. It just makes me hang my head because these guys are getting involved in so much stuff. And it just, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's like, a really, that's charges? a mindfuck. Yeah, that's a real you know mindfuck, I mean? yeah. When you're there, they're, um, they're brought on to do so many more things, you know, and it's like, no, wait, how, what, why? You know, like. <laughs> Emily Lindelof's got this reputation now as being a fixer. I mean, he was brought onto Prometheus as a fixer, wasn't he? Yeah, I thought that there was a really interesting thing that actually happened with World War Z as well. Um, yeah. Which I, I, if you haven't, if you're listening, and you haven't listened to the fucking audio books, like the audio adaptation. It's an amazing I've, experience. It's, I'm a huge fan of that. Um, I love the novel. Yeah, the novel um, is actually awesome as well, and my. Um, I couldn't believe it when I watched the film and I heard there was like a lot of that kind of stuff going on as well. Um, people are trying to fix things basically and cutting, you know, whole acts and stuff like that. And, and I don't know, I'm not trying to harp on that as well. You know, like, um, I think it's, you know, with this kind of stuff, when we, when we're speaking the way we are, we really just love this stuff and we love it so much that when it doesn't do right, it's like, what the heck, man? <laughs> But at the same time, it's not easy to make a good film. It takes. A it's not. I it, think it's more about that. It's when you can identify, when you can pinpoint a moment where it went yes. wrong, and it's like, why didn't well, you guys see that? You do that you in know? the story. You do that in the script. You, you go exactly. like, wait, 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 wait. What the fuck? Are you, this you're... it always goes back to that, right? It's like yeah. you write too fast. Spend yeah. more time writing. Just hasn't anybody commented on this stuff? Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I see it in the writing and the edit because I'm sure of a lot of the problems in Prometheus. I with Prometheus were in the edit. And it's just whole scenes you could have just cut out. Like the bit oh, where yeah. Hollywood is his helmet. Yeah. Just cut that out. Oh, don't need to be in that. It's fine. Yeah, there's so many uh, issues. There's continuity I mean? issues and there's also so just there's there's logical issues and stuff. And if you're creating a world based off of some sort of um, 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 factual notions, you know, of gravity and just typical things, you know, like why is the lady running straight when she could just zig to the right and miss it? And, you know, like <laughs> there's so many things that... The script needs it to... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just really, uh, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Um, 
it's really I think and I think you're hitting on another exact thing is is people are just running with it too fast and and that's another thing I was reading about with Stanley is he didn't make a ton of films in his life but he worked every day incredibly hard from what I understand and he'd take his time you know until it was right you know and uh, he was constantly doing rewrites one of my favorite parts in the behind the scenes of him is in The Shining when he's sitting there while Jack is being a goofball and he's sitting there and typing. And I think maybe he's doing all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. He might be doing that because he hand typed a lot of it. You know, <laughs> I think the whole thing is all is all um, hand typed. Um, he had a, he, I think he had a secretary do it. But uh, I just love that even on location, he's building it, making it better. You know, he's seeing how Jack reacts in, in the glass, and then he's readapting and changing and readjusting things and just making it better. And um, I think it's just you know, there's a. <clears throat> <clears throat> there's a like like we were saying i don't think these people go out and like really scott's not going i want to make a really shitty film let's go do this uh, that's the oh, opposite, no you know? obviously no one ever does that but no. it's just about catching those little bits because you think yeah. i would hope someone like ridley scott would be in the edit room and he'd see yeah. the cut of Prometheus, the theatrical cut and he'd see holloway take off his helmet and he'd be like whoa 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 let's just cut that shit out of there what's this doing yeah yeah exactly it's just it's, doing it yeah, I have a real hard time with that. And all few, all these comic book movies too. I just I can't even um, sit through them personally. Um, and it's and they're beautiful looking. Most of them, uh, most of them are they're just like so lit, like a like a Disney movie I would imagine or something. It's, it, there's there's no like that's what I love about like Blade Runner or the noir kind of. You hide a lot of things, and Alien had the same thing. I love that because my imagination runs, but um, that's a whole different argument, and I don't want to harp on that. I I I, I want to make sure it's I'm clear that these are just my opinions, and everybody has them. And my opinions right now, they they just you know they're just my based off of my own personal taste. But like films, like all the comic book films, like I recently watched the X Men movie, and and um, I had I was a huge X Men fan growing up, and I really wanted to to try and really enjoy it but it, that film got so complex <laughs> in its writing where it was like timelines and then we're shifting through time and now we're using like brains first class uh, sorry the, the is it first class first class was first class was fun year. yeah it was the last one that just came out did you read i've not you, seen that yet okay well i won't i won't spoil it for you but what i what i'm getting at here is is these films um elysium does it too it's like where they just keep breaking their rules, so there's no, there's no, there's, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, like, if your film's gonna completely break its own rules, then what's the point of watching it? You know, if if you're gonna lead me up for something and just go like, well, if I'm really mad, then I'll do this, and you're like, well, why didn't you do that like 30 minutes ago, you fucking asshole? <laughs> and I just get really upset. Yeah, exactly. I have, a, I have a, a thing with this, which is uh, it's like a little kind of pet theory. Well, not a theory, like a pet kind of rule that I've got with this because so much of you know sci-fi particularly is world building yes and yes. a lot of the world building com generally comes well anything is world building any story is world building yeah sci-fi is a particularly um, poignant one though because you have to world build with sci-fi sure in the time um, but um, no you're quite right though but um, Iron Man I have a um, I like the first Iron Man when it came out but I have a um, uh, like a little sort of a I don't hold my tongue. I hold my tongue. <laughs> <Keep> <laughs> I have a little, a little thing with that. Like a, it's almost like a, um, a MacGuffin kind of thing. Yeah. That really kind of annoys me with the first Iron Man. Where when he first uses the suit, um, we see him in the Middle East, and he's stood in the street, and a tank appears, and he opens up his wrist, and he's got a rocket in his wrist, and he fires it at the tank and blows the tank up. Remember Iron Man One? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. 
And it's like, okay, brilliant. You've got like a really powerful rocket in your wrist. Yeah. Whenever you get in a jam, use your wrist rocket. Yeah. And he never uses his wrist rocket again. That thing never appears. And there's plenty of times uh. where that wrist rocket would be really, really handy. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's 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 like it's just really lazy writing. Completely, completely honest. I don't want to be a dick, but like, come on, guys, it's lazy writing and in the editing, it's like, wait, if he that's exactly it, and so it all comes from the, the original source, which to me is, and it's a real odd thing in the film industry where the script and that whole phase is almost like there's no money for it, which is fucked because that's the most important part in the beginning of the creation. Yeah, it's creating so a strong falls. story. <clears throat> It only involves a couple of people. Yeah, I, I, I get that. <clears throat> the whole thing about the um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, me like, too. <laughs> I got coffee. It doesn't need. It doesn't need like much money because, yeah. like, oh well, it's what it's a couple of guys working in the, <laughs> in the houses. How much money is that going to need? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. And then it's 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 production. You're on set, and you've got like 200 people. Sure. That you can see how the understand that that needs money. Uh, you know, it needs needs to be done properly if you like, but. You know, get a couple of people in a in a house, give them three months. There you go, there's your script. You know, I, I kind of get how how they kind of see that. Weirdly enough, miniatures, uh, like you know, model model units tend to get the same thing as well. Like, which is for really some weird, reason weird. always always <laughs> underfunded. And those guys are some of the hardest working people you'll find on the film set, like the model builders. Yeah, you know, they're really yeah. really passionate people. And uh, you know they'll they just want to work, you know. And if you come at them with a cool project, they'll just they'll work. They'll be there twenty four hours a day. Yeah, you know, they just yeah. want to do the cool work. Well, and, everybody uh, wants to be a part of something special, you know. Um, I think that's just human nature, you know. And yeah, it's it's fucked though. It really is, and it's really weird, and it's really unfortunate that um, at the most important stage of is the writing, and and that's when it gets dismissed and the actions and all that stuff. It's just. It's really interesting, though, you know, and like we said, it's not, not you know, people don't just go and say we're going to make a shitty film. I just think sometimes people aren't really aware of it, and I think that's really important to have somebody that you trust, and if you, if it's just two people then you sh and you're making messed up films, you should involve somebody that's a real harsh critic of your work to, to maybe help you, you know, or yeah. something. I don't know, you know, it's, it's challenging. It takes time, and also when you, I think... A lot of it, it's not so much the actual script writing, it's the conceiving of the stories. Yeah. Because I see those as separate jobs. Like, Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, it's almost like a, getting a treatment together, like conceiving the story yeah. and working out the story and then the writing side of it. Because, I mean, I work, I do, a lot of my work at the moment is working as a writer. And the reason why I'm writing at the moment is because, you know, what I really want is to find writers I can collaborate with, with that will just kind of, you know, bring me amazing stuff that we can team together and make. Uh, and I, I hope to get to that point, but until I do get to that point and find those people, um, I'm going to do it myself because my only other option is to just sit on my ass uh, <laughs> and wait and hope to get lucky. No, um, you can't do that. No, no, I can't do that. So that's kind of led me into writing over the last kind of four or five years. And what I generally do, like my kind of process, is that I work. I come up with ideas. Um, come up with a story, like an idea for a story, um, and then look for a writer to team up with to actually get a script. Yeah. That's so, a similar way I, I'm, I'm approaching it as well. This is a very similar yeah, way. I think it's a really solid way of working because... There's a dialogue guy, you know, there's a person that understands dialogue, and then, you know, then you, I think that's actually a good way of doing it. You have somebody that's basically looking at the map. You're in a ship, and you're one's, one person's looking at the map, the other person's driving it, looking at, out the sea, 
And so you're kind of communicating with one another so that you get to land or whatever, you get to your destination. Yeah, if you've got the right people to collaborate with, I think I really it feels like the right way to work because... Yeah, it's a lot of trust. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, you need to be working with the right people. But um, It's hard to find those people too. But I think the key is to find, you know, if, you, if you're not with the right person, don't force it and don't make it happen. It, yeah. If it doesn't work, it just doesn't work. And just let it be and, and push forward and, and, and save that time and energy for the people that actually matter and, and that you care to, to uh, connect with, you know. I think there's also yeah. a key what you're finding is that when you're wanting to learn how to write and you're realizing that, well, if I have to do it, if, you know, there's like all these that line, like if, if you want to get shit done, do it yourself. You know, that's the best way to get shit done. And I think any filmmaker should understand at least how to write, how to help, how to write dialogue, how to work with actors and how to edit and how to film. You should, you should understand all those things. That's why I'm studying everything that I can. No, you do right. I'm into the same thing. It's you should. Like, yeah, it's like how, like it's like going into the kitchen and trying to make something, not knowing how to turn the stove on. It's like you have no business there, you know. <laughs> not to be a dick, I just that's the way I look at it, and I think that some of these guys definitely uh, they understand the main spectrum, but they don't understand the rest of certain parts, you know. And um, I don't know. I think it's really challenging, you know. I, I my like I said, my hats off to anybody who goes out and makes films, and not everybody they don't realize sometimes that their film's going to be crap until it gets out there. And, the way people interpret it. The way I love it is like how Fincher describes his whole way of, of, of a film process. It's like this multiple layered event and exposure of what it is. You know, the ideation, the script, and then the pre-production, then the acting, then the filming, then then the, the screening, then the editing, then screening, then the final release. And then it's like 10 years later, somebody mentions your film or something. It's like it never goes away. There's multiple dimensions to the experience, you know. So I find it to be fascinating, you know, like it's just crazy. I love one time listening to like Harrison Ford, I think it was, he was saying like, I would never want to direct a film. You don't get paid as much. And uh, he said something really funny, like it's it's the most st hard, stressful job and you don't even get paid that much or something like that. I thought it was like the the funniest thing because it's it's like you get reward if you're good, but then you also get hated if you're not. And it just gets kind yeah. of... It's, oh, it's a very exposed position. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, what are you gonna do though? <laughs> yeah, well, if, if that's what your calling is, if you're, you know, that's what's funny about, um, like I was studying the um, Enter the Void and, and Gasper's whole like uh, analysis of what he perceives as being our reality, which is like a, a loop, which is the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I guess it's based off of that book, I suppose. But it's what I found was interesting is is perhaps we are on a loop. You know, in our past life we were storytellers, and now we're in this era where storytelling's become this whole other things, where it's dependent on technologies and collaborative um, efforts, basically. You know, and what a weird dynamic it is. You know, it really is. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. I, I does every time I study and the deeper I go into it, I, there's some fundamental things that I take from it. But a lot of it's just mostly just about people putting in a lot of hard work, you know, <laughs> and doing their best and trusting one another and having good taste, you know. So. Well, I think good taste is a key thing. And I think this is where, <clears throat> actually, do you know what? I think that's one of the key things about working as a director is that oh, yeah. you have to have good taste. Because you're just constantly being asked loads of questions and you have to have an opinion on everything. And you have to be able to steer the project and like sort of brief everybody and guide everybody's work. Yes. Um, and it all comes down to ultimately having opinions on everything and that boils down to having taste. And if you've got, if your taste is on the money, if you've got good taste there, I said, I don't want to use those words because different projects require different tastes and sensibilities and blah, 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 blah. But um, 
yeah, I just think if you've if you've got good taste in these things, it, it gives you a massive advantage. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's it's your palate basically. I mean, like I can relate it to food because I think it's the same thing in just different contexts. But if you go to a restaurant, and you're judging food, and you don't have a sense of what you're tasting, then how do you know what's good? You know, what's, what food? What food is Prometheus? <laughs> don't ask me that. <laughs> what I was gonna say is that like you look at Star Wars and 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 George or whoever got him in connect connection with uh, Ralph McQuarrie, it's like. Without Ralph McQuarrie, Star Wars would have not been Star Wars in yeah. any fac- any facet. We would not have but the same ben, experience. Look at ben Burt, though. Take Ben Burt out of the equation. Take John Dijkstra out of the equation. Yes, yes. Well, it, these are key players that are you know pivotal. You know, uh, oh, this is this is the thing about these big films. Which is something I realized quite a while ago is that every now and again in sci-fi, you'll get a film. And everybody working on it in the key departments is a genius. Yes. Blade Runner, yes. Blade Runner Alien, uh, Star <laughs> Wars. Yeah, Alien, Aliens, um, all great examples of these. Look at Blade Runner. You know, you've got you've got Ridley Scott directing, you've got Jordan Cronenworth DOP, you've got Sid Mead designing it, yeah. you've got you've got uh, Roy um Roy Batty, you've got um Rook and <laughs> it's prime. Yeah. It's absolute prime. You've got Doug Trumbull supervising the visual effects. It's fucked, you know, you've man. You've got all these like, master geniuses <laughs> all working together for the common good. Look at Star Wars. You've got um, you've got George Lucas directing it. Um, you've got um, he was fresh off uh, THX too, right? Was it the next? Yeah, thing? I love THX. It's almost a Kubrick film. Well, that's definitely a nod. You know, I think that it was yeah, definitely it was, that was when George was very much. Um, I think he was taking a lot of risk, and he was just exposing himself for the to make to make the films that he wanted to make. It was a bit racy and had its interesting way of putting things. It's it's really actually really impressive for what it was from its time. I liked THX. I love the Zoetrope era, man. That was some cool yeah. stuff, man. It was definitely- I did a little shout out to THX on my uh, my short film, The Last Man. <clears throat> um, no one's is, noticed it, but is that out at- yet? Is did you release it? No, it's okay. not out yet. Um, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it, so. <clears throat> Um, well, I'll just mention it in case anybody happens to um, come across it anywhere. Um, was it yeah, hiding it, on the internet somewhere? Not yet. It's not. It's okay. um, basically what you've got. What we have to do with it is like give it a year to work its way around the festival circuit, oh, and then okay. we can put it out there. Because whilst right. you're submitting to festivals, they don't like you releasing it. You know, they want to kind of have a bit of an exclusive. Mine, 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 mine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I get it though. It makes sense. Yeah, so there's that going on. But um, yeah, it's a 20-minute post-apocalyptic piece about the last man in the world. But if anybody, if anybody can spot the THX one one three eight reference in it when they see it, if they get in touch with me, I'd like to know about it. Okay, there's a challenge. So people remember um, it when it comes out. I'd just like to point out actually some of the other people I got to work with on that because uh, I was fortunate enough to get um, a musician called Charlotte Hathaway to do the score, and um, she's probably the most famous for being the guitarist from Ash, the band Ash. Yeah, but, um, not my band, a, not my band. Yeah, another Ash. No, another um, Ash. She has an a up-and-coming uh, pop act called Silver Tongue, so there's a helicopter outside, I'm not sure if you can hear that of me or not. It's um, Ash, dude, they're coming to play. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, the internet word gets around quick. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Charlotte, I was fortunate enough to get her, get her first soundtrack on this so she did the score because it's, it's almost a silent film um, there's really not much dialogue at all because it's about the last one in the world and she wrote like 20 minutes of music for it 
and it's actually it's actually getting a release on vinyl. It's been picked up by um, a label. The soundtrack to the film's been picked up by a label, and it's actually getting a release on vinyl. So that's really exciting because I've not really heard of a short film getting a soundtrack released on vinyl before. So quite that's excited cool. about that. Yeah. So yeah, Charlotte Hasley. She's cool. How did you um, link up with her? I mean, that's another thing. I think that's. Do you just use the internet as a tool to, to for connection connections and stuff, or was there like? No, she's, she used to go out. My, she used to go out with one of my friends. Oh, okay. There so, you go. Um, yeah, it's in the family. He, uh, he put us in touch. Yeah, so she's she's family. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but the thing is, though, she's a hell of a find. It's like I'm I'm just so thrilled that she get her first soundtrack work because she's gonna get busy. And she's gonna. She's got a. She's got a big career ahead of her in soundtracks. I mean, she's already an established um, established musician and uh, pop act in her own right. But when she gets, in, you know, when the soundtrack stuff, works, she's she's going to be good. She's going to she's going to do significant work. I'm I'm quite convinced of that. So awesome. yeah, I'm really excited to to have um, Charlotte Hathaway music on the shot. And also the actor is a chap called Rich Glover, who plays Jacob Stanton, the Last Man in the World. And yeah, again, Rich, that guy, he works a lot with um, uh, Ben Wheatley. He did a field in England and Sightseers, and he's just about to be in a film called Into the Woods with Meryl Streep, uh, which will be out later on uh, in this year, I believe. Killer. So yeah, he, he, he was telling me about how he got to spend uh, a couple of days uh, duffing up Emily Blunt, which he was quite enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Actually, speaking of Emily Blunt, um, have you seen Edge of Tomorrow? I haven't seen that. No. Um, wait, have I? No, I haven't seen it. That's the. I'm gonna watch it tomorrow. Actually, with my wife. I've been out of town. And we haven't been able to get a chance to. That's from the the manga. All you need is kill, right? Yeah. Yeah. I gotta say, I wasn't expecting anything from that film, and I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was great. I don't know. I I just wasn't expecting anything. I just watched it, and it just really, it just really reached me for some reason. That's good. I mean, I think that's the way to get go at a lot of these things. I try. That's been another thing. I, I had a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> that's why I try to be cautious of what I say on the podcast. But I, I gotta speak my mind. But um, I don't listen or, or pay attention. I five years ago or so, before I really got into films heavily like I am now, I would be like, oh, wonder what it got in Rotten Tomatoes and blah blah. I don't give a fuck about that stuff anymore because. I only consume things at the rate that I want to, um, and th- what that means for me is I just I enjoy things at the way I want th- to enjoy them. You know, like there might be a time where I don't want to necessarily watch a film like Magnolia, so I'll watch something else. But it doesn't mean that it's a bad film. And then when I watch it, I don't really care what somebody else thinks about it necessarily. Um, I guess that's because I'm developing my palate so I can articulate things far greater than I used to. So I can really I go, what? like, this is a good film. This is why. It's not just, like, that film sucked. Before, it used to be, like, that film sucked because it didn't, you know. And it's that's a really broad <laughs> statement because it's like, wait, what about the film sucked? Was it the writing or was it the actor, that one scene, you know? Well, this is this is it because, I mean, I, again, I see all this stuff now, but I think what you – it sounds like basically you're coming at it from a similar – um, sort of level of thinking that I am, which is, you know, you want to fix things. Yes. And if this was your project, you'd be like, holy shit, no, there's a problem with that script. That oh, I go be- mental. I go, it drives you know me nuts. I mean? Yeah, it drives yeah. me fucking nuts. Because that's what happens, actually. I, I, and I do, and I talk with a couple of my friends about it, and I go like, well, like, instead of just being a bitch and complaining about it, how would I fix this film, you know? And yes, sometimes, it, sometimes it's so bad that I have to go back to the first act and rewrite the whole thing in my head. 
And then yeah. it just becomes this good, big, confusing mess. So that's why I really avoid watching shitty films because it, it fucks with my head. Because I can't like sleep because I'm constantly thinking about like, if I were to make this, how do I how, how do I use all the tools that I'm learning to fix this basically? And a lot of it just comes down to the writing. Um, and, and it all loops intention. back, right? It all loops yeah. back to why. What are you doing there in the first place? You're on set. You've got your actors. You've got your sets. You've got cameras and your lights. You're like, what are we doing here? Yep. Exactly. And, that, and the script tells you what you're doing here. Yeah, man. Exactly. If there's a problem with what you're doing here, it's because there's a problem with the script. Yeah, and I just I wish that there was just uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Have you experienced a bit with the the Hollywood way of doing things? Have you gotten a chance to kind of dabble in that whole space? Because it's a very interesting way of doing. Yeah, I mean, I do have I have a lot of knowledge of how that stuff works, but not direct first-hand experience. Um, I've kind of brushed up against a few projects and then backed away from them. <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting way of going about things, and that's a whole other thing I was going to uh, uh, suggest too. Is that a lot of this stuff there might be there might be power moves basically from executives and stuff that from people that might have maybe worked on certain films and, and think that their their voice is valid. Which sure, why not? But there's a whole like when it, when you're involving so many people and so much money, that's why I get so surprised when some films are successful when they cost so much because it's you got a lot of people trusting you, and there but there's a design by committee issue where the, your taste like you're saying like say a guy has really a, a impeccable taste, he's like yeah I, I should have like we should have this music group do this and we should have this do that and all these collaborate these and bring these two totally opposite things and combine them. And we'll create something unique for the for for viewers, which is contrast, you know. And then there's like an executive that goes, oh, I don't think so. But you know, in order to have that power, like for example, like I was studying Fight Club two months ago, and how Fincher used uh, what was it, uh, the music, the DJ Electronica Music Group, I can't remember the name, but he had them, and he was he, he had a lot of people questioning him, like why would you do that? They haven't done a score before, and this and that, but. Because he's he he is who he is. He's able. Oh, to, the Dust Brothers. Yeah. Yes, yes, the Dust Brothers. That's it exactly. Yeah. And it was like when I was listening to the film and the commentary, I was like, "Fuck!" I like I forgot how silly and funny and weird and wonky this, but it's so perfect. It's such a weird contrast to the imagery and the <clears throat> amazing cinematography and stuff. I just I don't know. That's just another prime example. But that's that's a director really pushing his his weight around. Do you like the the Solaris? Do you like George Clooney Solaris? Do you like that film? I love it. <clears throat> Me too. It's one of my yeah. favorites. It's one of my yeah. favorite sci-fi's. Gets it gets harshed up a lot, and honestly, that film, it, it, I think it's great. I don't, I really don't get why people don't like it as much as it seems I think, not. I don't know. Yeah, I think there, there's a, there's a. I think it's going to be one of those Blade Runner classic films. Personally, it's a personally. beautiful film. I mean, the original's beautiful as well, but I just thought, yeah, I thought it was great. Cliff Martinez's sound is his score oh, is just fucking amazing, dude. Like yeah. all his stuff is really phenomenal. The stuff he did with Drive is so great. Uh, there, there's some things that he did with the uh, Riffin's last Riffin's last film, which is really great. Um, but Solaris for me is one of those sci-fi films that <clears throat> breaks the mold. And and have you ever listened to the commentary to that? No, I haven't actually. I love it. It's got ja it's got James Cameron and then uh, the director. Yeah. It's, 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 so it's got the two of them talking, and and what you realize is they're they're totally different filmmakers. And James really, I can sense it in the way he ad 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 um, addresses. Uh, a, he has so much respect, and like loves the heck out of the, the the way that that guy does things because they're completely opposite to whatever he would ever do. So it was just like really phenomenal. Like I don't know. I really I really enjoyed it. I just thought it was. 
that's a really great um, piece of commentary if you get a chance to. Um, I'll have to watch that actually. Yeah, I am. Um, awesome. Yeah, I'll give that discount downstairs. Yeah, I listen to a lot of commentary while I work, um, just because I'm just. Yeah, I do as well. It's just one that slipped through the net. I've I've listened to most films I own with commentary on. There's, it's just you get so much more out of the experience. Is often just a whole other layer, especially if it's a film that you love. Yeah, well, you get so to understand the, the the ingredients that basically went into it, and uh, it's not you know it's 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 like watching Food Network though. It's not like being on the set and and, and tasting the food. You know, I think it's the same equivalent. It's as close as you can get to tasting it with your imagination, basically, which I find to be fascinating. And there's so much of it. You ever get through that all that Lord of the Rings stuff? There's like 17 hours of some shit like that. No, I, I turned away from that stuff, to be honest. The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> it, I don't know. It, I, I'm not really into um, magic Fantasy? stuff. <laughs> well, the thing is, I love, I love Game of Thrones, but that's the exception. Oh, well, it's like, got, dude, Game of Thrones is like... Oh, it's, titties and all kinds of stuff it's well, it's so beautiful facts. too it's sure like it's, it's about people it's about people <laughs> fucking people over well, it's drama That's, yeah it's drama yeah. yeah it's about families screwing other families yeah. for politics and money yeah. Um, and that's what pulled See, me into it the human condition and, yeah yeah I mean generally like anything that's got magic in it it just bores me it's like you've got your characters it's, it's lazy writing you've got your characters and they're in a jam and then someone pulls out a stick and points it at the sky and says a couple of words and everything's fixed <laughs> It's like, oh, that's good. That's a that's a good bit of story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Actually, yeah. one to that would be Harry Potter because that's just masterfully done. But well, um, I think the thing Harry- with Harry Potter is is what I think you're talking about that works is that um, the Muggle thing and the human aspect and the and the parallel worlds and then his ability to grow basically because well, I think what makes him in that franchise work is that he's not just instantly like check it out once boom you know it's like dude i suck i'm like a a muggle everybody hates me but i'm the special kid that i don't even know who that is is so it's it's just really good writing basically really good writing yeah yeah. it's clever writing and it's well put together and it's executed to film actually really wonderfully it's pretty amazing actually do you know Um, the original the original harry potter do you know that um do you know who jk rowling wanted to direct it uh no who who was gilliam Terry Gillian, who? What did that person do? Terry, Terry Gillian from the Monty Python um, team. He did Twelve Monkeys. Um, that would make sense. Okay, now that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know all the all the old like Time Bandits and Fisher King. Yep. I guess that would. I could see that translating. He did Brazil too. Brazil, yeah, yeah all of Brazil. Ah, yeah. No, Brazil's actually, wonderful. You know what? I've, uh, Brazil. I'm bad with names. <laughs> Brazil's quite an interesting piece because um, I actually um, I actually film. met Terry a while back. And we were talking about stuff, and um, we we're talking about Brazil. And he explained to me why he why he made Brazil and why Brazil is the way it is. And it's actually Brazil is a response to Blade Runner, because huh. um, um, Terry knows Ridley Scott quite well. And when Ridley Scott did Blade Runner, brought Blade Runner out, um, Terry Gilliam was like, "No, no, 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 that's not the future. Um, the future's <laughs> all about." You know, the future is going to be all about bureaucracy and silly, silly bollocks. Um, and so he made Brazil. And Brazil is basically what Terry Gilliam felt Blade Runner should have been. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't think it's either of those. They're a really weird double bill if you watch them back to back. I need to watch them both, yeah, back to back. Yeah, that's interesting. And now I know that context, I definitely have to watch them. Um, be careful right with the cut with Brazil, though, because you know, do you know the story about when that film was getting cut? No, no, I didn't know. There's, there's, I mean, is there a um, master cut or like a director's cut? There's a few, but basically what happened was the theatrical cut that was going to get released. Uh, Terry Gilliam was so unhappy with it. He apparently he 
he broke into the editing suite, stole all of the original <laughs> prints of the film, basically uh, took all of the material and just ran off with it. Awesome. And the studio was like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, look, if you don't let me cut the film, I'm going to burn all this. <laughs>